Well, today, if you look on the back side of the corporate confession of sin at the sermon notes, you won't find the four questions. But if you find the sermon outlined handout, you'll find the first two questions at the top of page one and questions three and four at the bottom of page two. If you didn't get a copy, make sure you ask Scott, who's handing out the hymnals, to to get you a copy. Before I start into my review of last week's message, I need to make a pulpit service announcement. As I worked through today's message, it became clear that I would need to do a third message in order to properly finish the survey of the book of Genesis without neglecting some very important details in the last chapter of the book. Details that really shouldn't be overlooked. However, when you consider that Gary preached over 100 messages when he went through the book of Genesis, I think that taking three messages to do a survey of the entire book is not too much time spent on the first book in our Bibles because beginnings matter. So now I'll start my brief review of last Sunday's message. Last week we began the survey of the book of Genesis and we made it all the way to chapter 35 where Jacob and Esau buried their father Isaac, which is actually technically 70% of the book. But in retrospect, given how many details I didn't comment on in that message, I probably should have broken it into at least two messages. But... We're moving beyond that. The title of today's message is Why Beginnings Matter, Part 2. And just like last week's message, it could be asked as a question. Do beginnings matter? And if so, why do beginnings matter? And just like last week, the answer is the beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination. Especially if there is a grand overall plan that includes every detail of all things in the plan. And we know that our God decreed all things, knows all things, has all power, and so he is ensuring that every detail of his plan indeed does come to pass. In chapter 1, verse 26, we saw God say, let us make man in our image. And this was our first hint at the intended destination of humankind. God made us the highest order of his visible created beings in his image for fellowship with him. In the last message, I also once again told you about how dispensationalism arbitrarily divides up biblical history into distinct periods of time. Seven distinct periods that they call dispensations. Once again, I also reviewed the gap theory, which I've mentioned in all three of my previous messages, because the dispensationists developed the gap theory. They developed the gap theory for two reasons. First, to explain when Lucifer fell, since by Genesis chapter 3, he has already fallen. And the second reason for developing the gap theory was to make room in the Bible storyline for the billions of years that the calculations of geologists and paleontologists insist the age of the earth to be. 
For you see, a theoretical time gap between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1, especially one that could be billions of years long, allowed an interpretation of the Bible which would enable the earth to be billions of years old while the current era, the recreation that allegedly started in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, could possibly be only six to 10,000 years old. This was a way to reconcile young and old earth creationists, but a mistaken way. The other fact that I pointed out in the last message was how dispensationalism pits grace and law against each other, as if they were as dissimilar in matter as matter and antimatter, as if they were mortal enemies that are diametrically opposed to each other. Dispensational theology tends to interpret God as very miserly with his grace until the day of Pentecost. In their view, up through and including the crucifixion of Christ, God was a hardcore legalist, unforgiving, unrelenting, and unmoved. Or at least, he was nowhere near as gracious as he became from the day of Pentecost forward. However, we saw in last week's message... God was amazingly gracious to people right from the very beginning. Even Adam and Eve, when they first rebelled against the authority of God, he was far more gracious to them than they deserved. And far from the grace and law being antitheses of each other, in the cross of Christ, we see them joined and welded together. Since the title subject and call to action of today's message will be the same as last week's message. I will front load the first two questions right now. The answer to the first question, what is the subject of this message, is have you found favor? Have you found favor with God? Has God been gracious to you like he was to Noah? The answer to the second question, what response did the message ask of me, is God wants me to thoroughly examine myself. Have I received his grace? Like Noah, have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Now, the verse that gave me the idea for the subject of this overview of Genesis was Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 6, I first commented on verse 5, which reads, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually in order to emphasize that here we saw the strongest initial evidence for the doctrine of total depravity. And if you remember the doctrine of, if we are human, if we are totally depraved, then the other four points are necessary if anyone is to be saved. Then in verse 8, we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I reiterated the doctrine of total depravity that Paul gives us in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And stated that God didn't look around for a righteous man and say, Oh, look, there's Noah. I'll pick him because he's a good guy. Then, since I skipped so much material in the first part of this survey, I failed to address verse 9 of chapter 6, which reads, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. 
somebody brought that to my attention, and I remembered the old proverb, haste makes waste. In my hurry to cover as much of Genesis as I could in the first message, I didn't comment on verse 9, which would appear to contradict what I had just said about verses 5 and 8. Now, we know that God is perfect. He cannot contradict what he has said in one part of his word and other portions of scripture. For if God contradicts himself, then we cannot possibly know when he is telling us the truth and when he is merely contradicting himself. So, if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God's righteousness, what are we to understand when God tells us in Genesis 6-9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation? The Hebrew word that is translated blameless is also used later in the Old Testament to describe animals without blemish, meaning that they were acceptable for use as sacrificial animals. Thus, the word blameless compares creatures of the same kind with each other. On a horizontal scale of measurement. Now, Noah was indeed a good man, especially when compared to his peers on the horizontal human plane of relative goodness and righteousness. Scripture also describes righteousness in a different way. On a vertical scale, measured against the perfect righteousness of God. On this vertical scale of righteousness, everything else is compared to the absolute moral perfection of God, which he will require of anyone and everyone who would stand before him in his holy presence. With regards to this standard of absolute moral perfection, none of the descendants of Adam and Eve are righteous. No, not one. Not even Noah. So God did not choose Noah because he was good. God sanctified Noah, set him apart as one of his elect because God intended to use Noah to build the ark that would save himself, his wife, and his three sons and their wives, and two of each of all the animals and birds from the flood that was to come. It was only because God chose Noah and sanctified him for his holy purpose that he was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Immediately after the flood, verses um, chapters 8 and 9, God reiterated the covenant of redemption to Noah and to all his descendants after him in his promise to never again destroy the entire earth by a flood of water. So the climate change alarmists can relax because heating from human activity is not going to melt the polar ice caps and flood all of our coastal cities. Now, ten generations after the flood, God called Abram to leave Haran, telling him to go to the land he would show him. Now notice, God did not give Abram the name of the land up front, Nor did he tell him how long it would take for him to get there. He didn't give him a map, directions, or a GPS. God simply told him to go, and Abram picked up and went. This is the same kind of faithful obedience that characterized Noah. And may it also be the faithful obedience that will characterize our lives. 
Now we're up to chapter 15. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, God reiterated the covenant of redemption to Abram. And we read the famous statement that the Apostle Paul used to teach that the elect are justified by grace through faith alone. Apart from any imaginary merit due to their imperfect, flawed good works. He, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. We then looked at chapter 7, verse 17 of chapter 15, verse 17 of chapter 15. And we read that a flaming torch passed between the pieces, showing that God alone was confirming the covenant because this covenant wasn't with Abraham. Abraham was asleep on the ground. This was God's covenant of redemption. The covenantees were the other two persons of the Trinity. Abram was merely one of the many beneficiaries of that covenant. In chapter 24, we saw that the Lord visited Sarah in a destiny-altering way, graciously causing her, who was barren, to bear Abram the son of promise. And through this mighty miracle of God, God moved his plan of redemption one step closer to its completion. Then in chapter 22, God commands Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. In this chapter, we are given the clearest hint of what God would do for us in giving his only son, the son that he loves with infinite agape love to pay the penalty for our sins. This was a providential hint of the future in a most curious revelation. For when God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, he already knew that Abraham would obey and do as he was told. But God only intended to record a type and shadow of things to come. So he provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice in the place of Isaac at just the last second. However, God would not withhold his only son, the son that he loved, infinitely more than Abraham loved Isaac, when it came time to fulfill the covenant of redemption and save us from the penalty due our sins. We then saw in chapter 24 how God graciously and providentially guided Abraham's servant in his quest to find a wife for Isaac. God led him to the exact location of the well that the granddaughter of Milcah and Nahor drew their water from. Some archaeologists have speculated that in those days, travelers often used to suspend lamps from the hudaws of their camels in order to see while traveling in the early evening before it got too dark to go on any further. Now, if this is true... This would have been one of the earliest versions of satellite navigation. But there's no substantial evidence to support that theory. In chapter 25, we saw how Rebekah gave birth to the fraternal twins, Esau and Jacob. Before the twins were born, God told her that the older shall serve the younger meaning that Jacob would receive the blessing of the firstborn, even though Esau was actually born first. In Romans 9, chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, 
Paul tells us that this reversal of the traditional order of things happened in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So here we clearly see the sovereignty of God in the ordering of the minutest details. Who was born first? Then in chapter 26, God reiterated the covenant of redemption that he had made Abraham the beneficiary of and in effect transferred it to Isaac and made the same covenant promises to him that he had made to his father, that he would bless him and his offspring, that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In chapter 27, we saw how Rebekah put Jacob up to tricking Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn son. And how Esau was so angry at Jacob that he promised himself that as soon as Isaac passed away, he would kill his twin brother. In chapter 29, we saw Jacob learn just how it felt to be deceived as he had deceived his father. When his father-in-law-to-be Laban tricks Jacob by giving him Leah for his wife instead of Rachel, whom Jacob loved and had served Laban seven years for. But this was only the beginning of Jacob's woes with Laban, which are documented in the next two chapters, 30 and 31. But in chapter 32, we saw how much Jacob feared Esau, his brother, since Jacob was convinced that Esau still wanted to kill him for stealing his birthright, and how Jacob sent great numbers of livestock ahead of him as presents in an attempt to diffuse and disperse Esau's anger in hopes that Esau might spare his life and not kill him. At this point in his life, frankly, Jacob is a pathetic coward of a man who even puts his wives and children ahead of him between him and his brother Esau. But alas, it is a most wonderful truth that our election is based on the good pleasure of God and not our character. Not our character, our deeds, or even our intentions, which are only evil continually. God used this event to to confront Jacob in an all-night wrestling match, which left him with a permanent limp. But he also blessed Jacob and changed his name with this declaration in verse 28 of chapter 32. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In chapter 33, we saw, or we read that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and they wept. Esau didn't want to kill Jacob anymore, but God used Jacob's fear to shape and mold his character. But Jacob is still at this point in the story, very far from being the sanctified patriarch that God intends for him to become. Then in chapter 34, we read of the defiling of Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, by Shechem the Hivite. However, after Simeon and Levi killed Shechem and all the men of their city in retaliation against Shechem for violating their sister, Israel's response to their atrocity was only that their deed would make Jacob loathsome to the Canaanites and the Paravites. Because they could easily wipe out his family due to their relatively small size. 
From what we read, Jacob still seemed to be more concerned about his own survival than he was about the abuse of his daughter or the implications of the grave injustice that his sons had just committed in their reprehensible act. Jacob exhibits the worst characteristics imaginable for a man of God, especially one to whom God had made so many rich blessings, had promised so many rich blessings. In chapter 35, we saw that God again reminded Jacob that his name had been changed from Jacob to Israel. The end of chapter 35, we see the death of Isaac at the age of 180, and Jacob and Esau buried their father together. So now we're ready to finish our survey of the next section of the book of Genesis. Chapter 36 is a record of the descendants of Esau. But the real, the real character in this story is Jacob. So in chapter 37, we learn how, Jake, how Israel's other sons are jealous of the favoritism that he shows towards Rachel's firstborn son, Joseph. We also learn of the dreams that God gave to Joseph and how those dreams make his brothers hate him so much that they first decide to kill him, but then they sell him to a caravan of Ishmaelite traders headed towards Egypt, their own brother. And whose idea was it to sell Joseph? Judah. Judah, the only one of the 12 brothers through whom the lineage of Jesus would come. This is unthinkable to the minds of mere mortals. It is impossible to imagine that human authors could ever make up such a story as this. Now, granted, since the Bible has been widely published, many human authors have copied the plot lines and ironic aspects of Bible stories as they write their own stories. But it is extremely doubtful that they ever could have come up with anything like the Bible stories that they copied on their own. Brothers and sisters, I honestly believe that it is the brutal honesty of the Bible when it doesn't portray its key characters in a favorable light, but instead shows them as they truly were in all of their depraved ugliness, warts and all. I believe that that is a main mark of the Bible's true genuineness. And we should be eternally grateful to God for being so brutally honest in the words of Scripture that he has revealed to us. In chapter 38, we are told more of the unflattering details about Judah, including the birth of twin sons from his daughter-in-law, Tamar. <clears throat> in chapter 39, Moses resumes the story of Joseph in Egypt. God foreordains that Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, buys Joseph from the Ishmaelite caravan that took him to Egypt. And Moses is careful to tell us that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And in short order, Potiphar had put everything that he owned in the charge of Jacob or of Joseph. Now Potiphar's wife lusted after Joseph and asked him to lie with her daily. But Joseph, being a God-fearing man, refuses with this stern declaration, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? One day, she caught him in the house alone, but he ran from her out of the house, leaving his garment behind in her hand. 
Well, hell hath no fury like the wrath of a degenerate Egyptian woman scorned. And she decided that if she couldn't enjoy him, she would destroy him. Therefore, she kept his coat until Potiphar got home from work and then accused him of wrongdoing and ill motives when she was the true criminal. Soap operas didn't invent this kind of drama. They borrowed it from the Bible. Potiphar then imprisons Joseph where the king's prisoners are kept. But everything was going exactly according to God's plan. And Moses again tells us, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And again, God makes everything that Joseph does successful. And soon he is in charge of the prison with no one above him except for the warden. In chapter 40, we are told about how Joseph interprets the dreams of the Pharaoh's chief baker and cupbearer. And both of Joseph's interpretations come true. Joseph asks the cupbearer, who gets restored to his position, to remember him when he gets out so that Joseph might be able to finally get out of this prison. But the cupbearer doesn't remember Joseph until chapter 41, two years later. The Pharaoh has two very disturbing dreams, but none of his magicians or wise men can interpret his dreams for for him. Then suddenly, because the Holy Spirit brought Joseph back to his memory, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph and his amazing ability to accurately interpret dreams. Joseph is summoned by Pharaoh, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh puts Joseph into his newly created second-in-command position so that Joseph can oversee the storing up of food during the seven years of plenty in preparation for the seven years of drought that would soon follow thereafter. In chapter 42, the seven years of plenty have passed and the seven years of famine have started. And in verse 1, we read, this is Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I cannot read that verse without it putting a smile on my face. The sarcasm in Joseph's choice, in Jacob's choice of words, simply cannot be missed. Why do you look at one another? Go buy some grain. However, notice that even though God has told Jacob twice that his name is now Israel, Moses Moses keeps referring to him in what certainly seems to be a somewhat derisive manner as Jacob because Jacob is still not acting like the man of God that he will eventually become. Israel, the father of the nation that the Messiah would eventually come from. In being chosen by God to be the father of the is being chosen by God to be the father of the nation from which the Messiah would come because of anything good in Jacob? No, but because beginnings matter. And Luke tells us in his genealogy of Jesus that the lineage that Jacob is a part of began with God and ended with the son of God. Blessed are those who are chosen by God as vessels of mercy destined for glory. But Jacob still fearful keeps Benjamin, the other son of his most beloved wife, Rachel there at home with him. 
because he fears that something may happen to the boy, since as far as he knows, Joseph is already dead. But he sends the other 10 expendable boys down to Egypt to buy food for the rest of the family, which by this time has grown to 70 people in number. When the 10 sons of Jacob come to Egypt to buy grain, Joseph recognizes them as his brothers, and the Holy Spirit brings his own dreams back to memory when his brothers bow down before him. But Joseph accuses them of being spies. And why? Because his brothers thought that he was spying on them for his father when he came looking for them all those years before, when they sold him as if he was nothing more than a piece of cheap merchandise. Remember, when they were ready to kill him, they said among themselves, we will see what will become of his dreams. Well, they haven't seen it yet, but Joseph had just seen that his dreams did indeed come true. Joseph interrogated them roughly, then decided to hold Simeon there in Egypt and demanded that they bring their younger brother Benjamin back with them to verify their story which was really just because he wanted to see his younger brother, Benjamin. The brothers, being convicted by the Holy Spirit, openly confessed to their crime against Joseph in his hearing, thinking that he cannot understand them because he is an Egyptian, and admit that their present distress is God's compensation for their mistreatment of their own brother. The irony, the agony, the pathos, and poetic justice of this story are so well orchestrated that nobody but God could have written it. The heads of, the, of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, although wicked and godless men, are being brought to repentance by the Holy Spirit through his providence and his wide guidance of their godly younger brother Joseph, the one they hated so much just a mere decade and a half earlier. The grace of God is so richly displayed in this part of the story that we just have to stop and gaze upon it. We cannot simply rush past this historic moment in this historical narrative. But the, the peak, the pinnacle of chapter 42 is verse 36. The height of Jacob's agony. For here we read, in verse 36, And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Greater pathos was never written by any original human author. In chapter 43, as they run out of the grain that Joseph gave them in Egypt, their father tells them to go buy some more. But Judah reminds him that if Benjamin is not with them, the Lord of the land will not sell them any more grain. In the meantime, everyone seems to have forgotten that Simeon, the butcher of Shechem, is cooling his heels in an Egyptian prison. Judah finally begins to show the character of the man of God that his position in the lineage of Christ should display as he pledges to his father that he will bring Benjamin back safely or he alone will bear the blame forever. On the day that they return with Benjamin, Joseph orders that a feast be prepared for his 11 brothers. And in chapter 44, Joseph gives his brothers their final test. 
And when he decrees that Benjamin must, be, must stay in Egypt because Joseph's allegedly stolen silver cup was found in Benjamin's bag. But the rest of them are free to return home. Judah steps up and first painstakingly reiterates the entire story back to Joseph and then demonstrates the godly character of selflessness when he offers to stay in Egypt as Joseph's servant in the place of Benjamin. Well, this is too much for Joseph to bear. Finally, he sees true God-honoring remorse and repentance coming from the brother whose ideal it was to sell him to the Ishmaelites when his other brothers were ready to kill him. So in chapter 45, Joseph finally revealed his true identity to his brothers and then gave his brothers the most famous speech in all the Bible on the sovereign and providential loving kindness of God. Even while they meant nothing but evil in their mistreatment of their brother Joseph, God meant it for their eventual good. This was also the most stunning foreshadowing of how the wicked murder of the only innocent man ever to walk on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve committed cosmic treason against God, how the wicked murder of that of the only innocent man was actually intended and used by God to save many of those murderers of his son from all of their sins, not just the sin of murdering the Messiah. Now I realize that it might seem like it would be criminal of me to stop our survey now at this point and go on to answer our last two questions. But if I don't, this message will go on for well over an hour. But there has been a method to my madness, for I know that every time I preach another long message like the last one and this one, that it will increase the fervency of your prayers for Pastor Gary to recover quickly so that he can return to this pulpit soon. The sooner the better. Last week I told you that when I first became a believer, I thought that the biblical character I related to the most was the Apostle Paul. Because as a new convert, I was zealous for the things of God, even though as I became more mature in my faith, I came to realize how little I really knew and how very imperfectly I understood those things of God. However, as I came to know more and better understand sound doctrine and became more acutely aware of my own sinfulness, my individual depravity, I began to realize that the biblical character that I truly had the most in common with was not the Apostle Paul, but the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, the supplanter, the schemer, the manipulator, and the conniving opportunist who stole his brother's birthright. Last week, I also asked you what biblical character you relate the most to. I hope you've been thinking about that. So why do beginnings matter? Because the beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination. Notice how I phrased that. May hint at. Just as the wheat and the tares are often indistinguishable until they produce their fruit just before the harvest, so in the world, reprobates may appear to be the elect and some of the elect may often look like reprobates initially. But those of us 
who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Those of us who indeed, like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have been recipients of the grace of God. We strive with all our might, with everything that is within us, to work out our salvation, to make our calling and election sure. But first, we must be sure that we have received the grace of God. The third question on the bottom of the handout reads, was a how-to given to me for me to respond to appropriately? Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. No, not the love chapter. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and I read verses 1 through 5, but focused on verse 5, which reads thus, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I then voiced the question that I hope that most of you were asking, what is this self-administered test that I need to take and pass? But we didn't have time to explore that adequately last week, mainly due to my trying to cover too much in my first message on Genesis. See how much you should be praying for Pastor Gary to get back up here. However, I did tell you that the test of whether or not you are in the faith requires honest introspection and a sober evaluation of your true heart condition. Last week, I also mentioned a book that Jonathan Edwards wrote entitled A Treatise Concerning Concerning Religious Affections. He wrote it near the end of the First Great Awakening because during the revival of the 1740s, Edwards saw two diametrically opposed views on emotions and their presence in the conversion of people to Christianity. One side denounced emotive expressions of faith, claiming that they were nothing more than attention-seeking excesses. True spirituality was not, was not expressive and swept up, but modest and buttoned down, they asserted. But as a result of Edwards personally examining many new converts very carefully over an extended period of time, as well as examining those people who seemed to have been totally bypassed by the revival, he came to this conclusion. Anyone who has no religious affections, who has no spirit-stirred emotions towards God within his heart, such persons are in a state of spiritual death and are wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God within their hearts. Edwards also wrote that if the great truths of Christianity are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. They will produce a genuine emotional response. A regenerative human heart cannot remain unmoved by the love of God that has reinvigorated it with new spiritual life. Last week, I also asked if what you knew about God resides only in your head, or has his truth pierced into the very center of your being? Has it burst through the prison doors of your heart, exposing your deepest intentions and desires so that you can no longer feign ignorance of their ghastly and hideous nature? 
As the blazing light of his holiness began to stream into the dark inner recesses, driving out every hidden unholy passion that you secretly cherish. Has his Holy Spirit driven you to your knees in shameful remorse and made you hate your sinful nature with a holy hatred? Has he begun to renew your mind so that you long to think his thoughts after him? Has he begun sanctifying you, preparing you for your eventual destination? Edwards gave two more standards by which we could evaluate ourselves in order that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we might make our calling and election sure. The first was false assurance rests on its own laurels. It is satisfied in itself. A truly born-again saint of God constantly desires to grow in godliness and is never satisfied with his or her present level of holiness. A child of God who loves her heavenly father always wants to love him more deeply, purely, and fervently. On the other hand, the make-believers pretend love for God and imitation desire to obey him will always droop, wilt, and fade away with the passage of time. Lastly, Edwards said, those who earnestly trust God are also eager to obey him. Just like Noah and Abraham, they prove their faith by their obedient works. To those who are genuinely his, their growth in holiness is the highest priority of their lives. It is their chief engagement, their deepest devotion, and the thing that they pursue with the highest earnestness and the most dutiful diligence. So let's review the questions. Number one, what is the subject of this message? Have you found favor with God? Has God been gracious to you? Number two, what response did the message ask of me? God wants me to thoroughly examine myself. Have I received his grace? Like Noah, have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Three, was a how-to given to me for me to respond appropriately? Yes, I am to examine myself according to the scriptures to determine if I am in the faith, to determine if the spirit of Christ dwells within me or not. Does my love for God grow deeper and sweeter with each passing day? Do I obey God's commandments? Do I long to obey God more fully and less haltingly each and every day? And finally, question number four, was a time frame specified for how long this might take for me to complete this task? Once again, that question is always the hardest to answer because in many different ways, every one of us are quite different from each other. And doing a thorough self-examination is extremely difficult because our hearts are exceedingly deceitful and only God truly knows them with certainty. So we always require the two-edged sword of his word wielded by his spirit to reveal to us our truest state. But each and every one of us should pray fervently that God take us to task and give us no rest until we are sure that we have entered into his rest. Let us pray. 
Oh God, you know how impossible it is for us to rightly know ourselves unless you make us see what only your Holy Spirit can uncover and expose to the penetrating light of your liberating truth. Show us and cause us to know with certainty if we have indeed been saved by Christ's work alone. Remove any shadow of doubt for those who waver and lack footing on the solid rock of assurance. Father, if the Holy Spirit has genuinely taken me into union with Christ and has taken up residence within me, don't allow me to remain barren, but cause me to bear fruit for your glory. Prune me, purge me, that I may trust you and obey you more easily and readily in each and every new situation as it arises. Cause me to love your commandments and to cherish holiness more than gold, silver, and precious stones. Renew not only my mind, but the attitude of my heart, so that I do what is right with the greatest joy and not merely out of a dutiful obligation, but out of the deepest gratitude for your selfless sacrifice on my behalf. Amen.